This is Mark Stein. Winter is a big blah, so it's time to get out of town with the ultimate cabin fever reliever. Join me on the 2024 Mark Stein Caribbean Cruise, sailing from Florida to the Bahamas, Jamaica, the Caymans, and Mexico for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Britain, Europe, the House of Lords. And we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Cause you've been found and convicted of a serious crime. the guilty party right here as determined by a jury of my peers february 21st 2024 it is 3 p.m deep state standard time 4 p.m in the beautiful canadian maritimes 4 30 p.m in fabulous newfoundland and beyond the americas 8 p.m in london 9 p.m in paris 10 p.m in jerusalem 11 p.m in yemen yemen yeah, man, Yemen, for all you hooties, hooty hooting out there. 11.30 p.m. in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 4 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers, sorry about that. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, still a little bit sorry, but you should be up by now. 9 a.m. in Auckland. A rather more civilised hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri, and even deeper into Thursday in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific, where you're so far ahead, I've probably already lost my appeal by now. That appeal, by the way, is in my American case, Man versus Stein, now cruising effortlessly into its uh, 13th year, the appellate phase. Uh, meanwhile, across the Atlantic, my suit against the UK state censor Ofcom for their rulings against my coverage of the COVID vaccines, uh, which seems uh, ever more ridiculous as each week goes by, and the official propaganda enforced by the buggers at Ofcom crumbles even more. Uh, anyway, that uh, that suit comes to the King's Bench Division of the High Court in London on June the 11th. Uh, a little postponed because on all the available dates in March, Ofcom was washing its hair. And in between those twin trials of the century, it's the Mark Stein Caribbean cruise starting Saturday in Fort Lauderdale, dear Michelle Buckman, who has been a rock of support 
to me this last month, uh, attending that wretched trial in the D.C. Superior Court. Um, dear Michelle is going to be there. She's always a big hit on our crew. She's wonderful company, as you will discover if you've booked passage at MarksteinCruise.com. 100 years ago today, February 21st, 1924, in Kutama, in the British colony of southern Rhodesia, Robert Mugabe was born. He grew up to be the first prime minister of independent Zimbabwe and then the strongman who beggared and ruined the, quote, jewel of Africa. We may mark his centenary by running a few of the many jokes about his Chinese-made rubber penis, uh, that they used to make in Harare until uh, he decided uh, to outlaw it. Uh, the jokes, that is, not the penis. Uh, you don't have to go to Africa anymore to find leaders destroying once great and prosperous nations. There's a lot of that about, with or without the Chinese-made rubber penis. You know, the wankers of the American mainstream media basically reported my guilty verdict as a triumph for the forces of science over the forces of disinformation, uh, which they'd know if they'd actually sent a reporter to the courtroom, which they didn't do. Uh, but if they had, they'd know that wasn't what the trial was about at all, as the judge was at pains to emphasise every couple of days. Nevertheless, everybody got the message from my guilty verdict. They got it loud and clear. Headline of the day from my old newspaper, the Chicago Sun-Times. Quote, Chicago sues five giant oil companies accusing them of climate change destruction and fraud. The suit says BP, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil and Shell have hurt the city by discrediting science even as their products lead to catastrophic consequences, including strong storms, flooding, severe heat and shoreline erosion. Uh, quote, Mayor Brandon Johnson's administration filed a lawsuit in Cook County Circuit Court Tuesday that names uh, BP, Chevron and the rest, accusing the companies of discrediting science and misleading the public as the climate crisis continued to wreak havoc on the planet. Uh, so there we go. It's the uh, where we, we now <laughs> in the land of the First Amendment. Don't even mention the First Amendment to me, by the way, because as you're moving into the uh, 13th year of a lawsuit over a 270 word blog post, I don't want to hear a word about that First Amendment, but uh, it's not just me. Uh, expressing your opinion now, disagreeing with the approved narrative. Disagreeing with the approved narrative. And um, if you think it's just going to be confined to climate change, yeah, good luck with that. OK, let us get to your questions. Oh, look at this one. Very timely. This from David, uh, who I take it is not American because he says, Hi, Mark, just landed in Fort Lauderdale on our way to the Stein Cruise. There, that we depart on Saturday from Fort Lauderdale in Florida. Uh, first time in the US in more than a decade, says David, and it looks so tired. 
had the pleasure of two shoeless shuffles and a lost bag, and we have only been here a few hours. Uh, in fairness, you, you know, you can get lost bags elsewhere. Uh, Air France, as you may recall, lost my bag. I think it was last year. They Instead of sending it to Montreal, they sent it to Mauritius. Uh, I would have liked to have been sent to Mauritius, but I never get that lucky. Uh, and then when Air France eventually put it on the plane to the correct destination, Air Canada, or whoever it was, baggage control, or whoever it was at Montreal, managed to lose it in their system for another month. So it took about best part of two months before I get it, got it back. So that, that, that may not be unique to America, the lost bag business. But the shoeless shuffles are, you know... Uh, I've, I've said this before, but you notice if you go to other countries, you don't have to take your shoes off when you're uh, going uh, through the airport. Um, and it's it, 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 and and there are only a couple of explanations for that. Have whoever invented the technology that enables you to pass with your shoes through the scanner? Uh, is that a Belgian invention? Is it a Slovene invention? And and they've decided they're going to share it with the French and the Australians and the Norwegians and the Uzbeks and everybody else except the Americans. And so Americans still have to shuffle shoeless. Or is it just that... Uh, Something about the uh, Transport Security Administration and the general tenor of the Department of Homeland Security that thinks it's good to make so-called freeborn citizens shuffle shoeless through the airport. So uh, I can understand, David, if you've come from Australia... Uh, why you would notice that. David continues, but it isn't just the buildings that are tired. The technology seems backwards compared to Oz and Asia, and the bureaucracy is noticeable everywhere. Granted, a few airports is not a random sample, but it got me thinking. I wonder when America will descend... <laughs> <laughs> to third world status, not just the loss of traditional values, which we can see nearly everywhere, uh, but nowhere more than man versus Stein, but outright widespread poverty. See you on the cruise. Um, yeah, that the bureaucracy thing is interesting because America has big government, expensive government, spends a ton of money, but as you can't actually see any evidence of what it's spending it on. You know, in... Uh, Scandinavia say when they the governments uh, they're quite high tax regimes but you can sort of see what you're getting for your money like that fabulous uh, bridge across the Orison Sound from Copenhagen to Malmo so if you're in Sweden it takes less it's a fantastic thing that they built artificial islands they've got trains cars running across uh, this huge body of water between two countries. And what it means is, uh, if you're in Sweden, at the Malmo end, you can catch a plane from an airport in another country, Copenhagen in Denmark, for less time than it takes you to get from Fifth Avenue in Manhattan to LaGuardia Airport, an airport in the same city. So things like that, America, you know, yeah, uh, you can't dine on the Golden Gate Bridge and the Hoover Dam forever. They're, they're a lot... Uh, what uh, David is quite right that what 
America spends all the big bucks on is bureaucracy. That's one reason why when they decide to get you, they can get you on anything. Because I forget where I first saw this statistic. It was I think it was back in the 90s. So it's probably gone up by now. But it worked out that the average American breaks 300 rules or laws, if you want to dignify them as such, every day. What that means is that when the state in New York decides to screw over Trump, there's always something that you can screw him over for. I learned that lesson. Uh, I've talked about this on Russia a, a, a zillion times. There was, the, there was a young lady. Uh, she used to work half time for Rush and half time for me. And she worked out of her flat in New York. I think it might even have been a bedsit studio apartment. And so she just got out of bed in the morning, crossed over to her desk and started work. And for that, I had to pay the New York commuter mobility tax. Because <laughs> apparently... <laughs> Uh, walking from her bed to her desk uh, made me lie to mobility tax. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, you get careless on these things. It's so complicated. So uh, one day I walked into my office and my poor assistant uh, in New Hampshire was terrified because we'd had a letter from the state of New York uh, from their Bureau of Compliance informing me that I was not in compliance with the Bureau of Compliance and the payment for that was ten thousand dollars and after that i determined i would never i would hire a headhunter if i was if i were in the in, in the market for a uh, a long distance assistant who worked from home i would hire a headhunter from the jungles of new guinea before i would ever again hire anyone from the state of new york and that's all it is. It's as I said, this this huge regulatory regime is what enables them to screw you over when they decide. Everybody does what Trump uh, uh, did, but uh, when they decide to get you, they uh, can always find something to get you on. And you actually, you know, who pointed this out? Your point about the airports looking so tired, as you put it, that actually was Donald J. Trump in 2016 when he would go on quite correctly. I mean, basically, LaGuardia has been a building site for half a century. Uh, I, I've stopped, I, maybe it isn't now, I stopped going to it a few years ago because I just couldn't stand it because there's all these wires snaking across the terminal, there's all these the things dug up and shut down. Uh, they've, been, they've been refurbishing it for decades. And he was quite right to point out that compared to almost anywhere else, uh, these airports are embarrassing. But you, are, you say uh, it does look... And it's depressing if, you, if you're someone like me. I remember, you know, when I, when I was six or seven going to America and it was the height of modernity and modern cool. And it has undoubtedly slipped behind. Now, when you talk about third world status, yeah, if you import the third world on the numbers that America does, you know, you become the third world. I mean, okay, what what's the way to bet? The bet is that simply by landing on American soil, so you land at one of these crappy airports, you do the shoeless shuffle, you discover your bags lost, whatever, but simply by virtue of touching down on American soil, you suddenly uh, become seduced 
by the uh, by by the uh, brilliance and logic of the United States Constitution, so that it's not like other countries. Sweden just happens to be where the Swedes live, and Finland's where the Finns live, and Poland's where the Poles live. No, no, no. Here, simply by touching your feet down on the beautiful idea that is America, the proposition nation, you will become seduced by the U.S. Constitution and you will be demanding liberty and the First Amendment, the Second Amendment and small government. Well, I don't, so that's one theory. The other theory is that if you pour import the third world on the numbers that America has done and continues to do, you will become the third world. And you can see evidence of that in certain parts of the country already. Outright widespread poverty, says David. It's an interesting question whether you can be a nation of 500 million people and still be, which America will be, at the present rate of Joe Biden open borders about halfway into his second term, whether you can be a country of 500 million people and still be a first world nation, that's an interesting question. And by interesting question, I mean, no, you can't. I don't, I don't think so. Anyway, uh, <laughs> don't judge the entire joint <laughs> by the airport, David, and we will see you Saturday on the Mark Stein cruise. Um, <laughs> And uh, that's, a, that's a very live question uh, to be kicking uh, off with. Uh, Patrick Gagan says, hello, Mark. I'm wondering if maybe you would like to jump in the back of my truck so I can smuggle you to a non-extradition country so that you can get away from this lawfare. Uh, he's referring to my guilty verdict. Uh, I've been ordered to pay Michael E. Mann a million and one dollars by the jury in the D.C. Superior Court, that reference to jumping in the back of the truck, that was my offer to Conrad Black when he ran into trouble 15 years ago, a little over that, I think. Now, um, with the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt U.S. Department of Justice, and I offered to uh, put him in the back of my truck. I'd throw a tarp over him and drive him across the border into Quebec, and then uh, from there to Newfoundland, we'd take the ferry over to Saint-Pierre, uh, the French colony uh, just off the coast of uh, Newfoundland, the remnants of French North America, but it does have jet service to Paris, and we would put him on that jet, and thence to a country that does not have an extradition treaty with the United States, because U.S. Just to bring it back to Julian Assange, U.S. justice is so corrupt. If Julian Assange does not win this hearing in the English High Court, which I've been following with great interest because I will be in that court in a couple of months' time, he, if, he, if he's put on a plane to the United States, he will die in an American prison, and a lot sooner than you think. No country should have an extradition treaty with the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt U.S. Department of Justice. But Patrick is making a point here that I neglected to take my own advice. That, you know, Conrad was a romantic. He thought he could stand on the truth and that he would... He loved America. 
and and his love for America was so total that he loved even its justice system and believed that if he stood there uh, in a courtroom in Chicago that he would get a fair shake uh, and that his love for America, his lifelong love for America, would be vindicated. And I saw the way this was going to go and figured, no, you know, you've only got so many years on this earth and you would be better off uh, spending them far away from the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt U.S. justice system. And then what do you know? <laughs> Everything I said to Conrad also applied to me, but I failed to take my own advice. Heather. Heather says, hi, Mark. I have listened uh, to you and read your books for more years than I realized. So it pains me uh, to... Wait a minute. I've managed to make it go away now. Hang on a minute. I've got to try and get this uh, email back. Uh, oh, yeah. Here it is. Uh, so it... Uh, hi, Mark. I've uh, listened to you and read your books for more years than I realized. So it pains me to say I've only just become a member of the Mark Stein Club. Well, we're glad to have you with us, Heather. As an attorney watching your recent case against that clown man, I finally had some comments to make. Yes, <laughs> yes, we could do with uh, some more attorney uh, members, I think. Thank you for putting up three years on. This was our commemoration of the death of Rush Limbaugh. It was the third anniversary of Rush's death on... Uh, Saturday. It was a great listen, says Heather, if not heartbreaking. Uh, my realization of how long I've listened to you was highlighted when you said you first subbed for Rush in 2006, which means I must have been introduced to you when I was in Baghdad with the 1st Cavalry Division, 2006 to 2008. Those three hours were the best part of any day over there. So many things I could ask, but I will start with a big one. Any future plans? for a land-bound cruise for those of us averse to being trapped in the middle of the ocean. You know something? After a month in your fine capital city, Heather, I would far rather be trapped in the middle of the ocean, any ocean, actually, the uh, Arctic Ocean, the Antarctic, if you want. I'd far rather be trapped in the middle of the ocean than trapped for another month in the middle of the District of Columbia. I know what you mean. Every so often, we've had the these things from people who say, oh, uh, could you do, say, a riverboat cruise? And we've looked into these on the Mississippi and on the Danube and on various other uh, great rivers of the world. And there are certain problems with that um, that, uh, you know, like on the Danube, when the water gets too low or whatever, they, uh, they, they put you in a bus. And, and I don't know whether I... Uh, you know, going down the Danube by bus is <laughs> quite as glamorous as the Markside cruise. And then during the COVID, when the cruise lines were all shut down, we had this thing about, you know, just going to some uh, big resort hotel, I don't know, the Breakers in Palm Beach or someplace like that, and maybe doing it there. We'll, we'll, we'll certainly look into that, Heather. But meantime, welcome to the club and... Uh, I'm not sure. What, you've left it at least two decades or something? That's good. You don't want to rush into these things. Brian from Minneapolis writes, Dear Mark,
Mark, I worry about our party. I take it Brian means uh, the Republican Party there. Uh, or I'm not. Uh, what's the other one in Minnesota? The Democrat Farmer Labor Party or whatever it's called. Uh, many conservatives have taken a hard stance that America should only worry about itself and stay out of worldly affairs, believing any involvement that would result in a military conflict is just another neocon payday. We let enemies like Russia, China, and maybe even Iran to an extent use war to show influence. NATO nations that don't pay their fair share don't realize that if the main suppliers of their protection were to be taken out first, they would have to defend themselves. What is your stance on all of this? We need you more than ever, Mark. Hang in there. Um, well, I'm not entirely sure that's right. People aren't saying stay out of world affair. I mean, some people are, but that's certainly not what I'm saying. Uh, they're saying stay out of uh, war because America can't win a war. It spends, it accounts for something like 40% of the planet's entire military budget, and it hasn't won anything that mattered since 1945. And in a serious country, that would prompt some reflections. But because it's a racket, the military industrial complex, so-called, is a racket, and uh, and it works well for the beribboned buffoons of the general staff who, uh, as soon as there's no more room, they've got ribbons from shoulder to scrotum, like thoroughly modern Millie has. They say, uh, OK, I've got enough ribbons now. Uh, I can't walk with the amount of ribbonry i got on me. It's dragging me down so much. Uh, so it's time to go to the private sector, do a bit of lo lobbying, milk my uh, contacts for the next 20-year unwon war. We don't really care where it is. It can be Afghanistan. It can be Ukraine. Doesn't matter. Just as long as it goes on for decades and we all make a ton of money. Diane Calabresi mentioned this story in our comments. I think in the last, sometime in the last uh, day or two. Uh, she said, according to Tom Fairless on page two of the Wall Street Journal, uh, the, Ukraine were, the Ukraine war is justified because, quote, it's good for the economy. I didn't quite believe this. Uh, but Diane had said it, so I went and looked up the Wall Street Journal, and this is the actual headline, quote, How War in Europe Boosts the U.S. Economy. That's great news, isn't it? Oh, whoa, if only we wouldn't have all these problems now with people on food stamps. If only we'd managed to make uh, the war in Europe that we unfortunately brought to an end in 1945, if instead we'd managed to keep that going. Uh, until the present day. Um, uh, Di Diane added that Biden's guys are, quote, actually touting that 64% of the $60.7 billion it wants for the newest infusion of cash for Ukraine will come back to the USA's so-called defense industrial base. This is no, I mean, I can't quite imagine how even at the, the uh, Wall Street Journal where Homo economicus, uh, you know, his interests trump culture and everything else, how, how it can actually justify war. Because in eastern Ukraine, over two years of war now, two years of war, 
has uh, abs- absolutely devastated that country. It's driven a third of the population to leave the country. Uh, they're now conscripting guys in their late 40s. They've killed and maimed so many of their young men. But because it boosts the uh, defence industrial base, which is the new name for the military industrial complex. War in Europe is a terrific boost for the US economy. And because everything else is kaput in the US economy, that's 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 what we're looking for. You know, um, the US way of war, except as a racket to enrich the, quote, defence industrial base, doesn't work doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't accomplish uh, a nation state's national interests. It doesn't advance a nation state's national interest. Um, It advances this corrupt little group. Uh, It's a racket. It's a racket that ordinary, you know, so men in Washington make a bucket load of money and guys come back from the Hindu Kush and the Sunni triangle with their limbs missing. It's disgusting. And I will make this point, Brian. Being engaged with the world, you know, doesn't mean having a bloated budget and uh, and and doing shock and awe for a couple of days and then dithering around uh, for another 20 years uh, and the spe- so-called training the Afghan National Army, which manage you train them for 20 years and then it folds in 20 minutes to the Taliban. You know, where is the right on this? Right? Shouldn't take a niche Canadian to talk about this. It really shouldn't. Where are all the... Where, where is... You know, it's all very well for, for the Bill Crystals of the world to say, yeah, this is a fantastic system. It's not fantastic if you're some schlub in northern New Hampshire who believes all the uh, all, all the bumper sticker, oh, we support our troops thing, and comes back uh, from uh, come, comes back from Helmand province with an arm and two legs missing. It's disgusting, and it's not the way. You know, if you want to be the superpower, China, you say China uses war to show influence. China actually doesn't. China's taken over the world without firing a shot. It's taken over, I'm ashamed to say, large parts of His Majesty's dominions uh, from the South Pacific to the West Indies uh, without firing a shot, uh, just by doing this Belt and Road Initiative stuff, by making... Uh, by thinking like a commercial republic, which is what America used to be, uh, and and simply advancing its commercial interests. Now, Russia is a slightly different proposition, although Russia, um, the invasion of uh, of Ukraine is not typical of Russia's relations with European neighbours. I mean, far more, if you think about it, you know, you're going on, oh, NATO nations would be uh, up the swanee uh, if uh, if they didn't have uh, US troops. Um, I I don't buy that, actually, because if you look at Germany, 
which had more influence on the German government until the Yanks or the Ukrainians blew up the Nord Stream pipeline? The fact that, uh, that Russia had become Germany's principal energy supplier or the fact that there are still U.S. bases in Germany and they're of great benefit to the local pub and the local supermarket. Obviously, if you look at the actions of the German government in the years before Ukraine, uh, R Russia had far more influence on the German government as its energy supplier than uh, the United States did by stationing troops there. We need. It's not 1950. 1950 can't last forever. And it's time to get real about some of this stuff. The, the, the Pentagon mod, the Pentagon should be raised. And the new Joint Chiefs of Staff should have to meet in a strip mall on the edge of Cleveland. Uh, this whole shock and awe, uh, you know, money no object approach to war has been disastrous and especially disastrous for the poor bloody infantry uh, who have to fight it. Uh, OK, I'm getting a bit too worked up now and uh, having a bit of a problem with my voice. So let us pause a moment from the passing Sherry Vary for a musical interlude. Uh, last uh week, we marked the 100th anniversary of uh, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, and I was very touched by um, some of your responses uh, to that. Um, quite a year for American music, 1924. On February 18th that year, a young man called Bix Beiderbeck made his very first record. As you'll know, if you follow our Song of the Week on Sundays, Bix was a good pal of Hoagie Carmichael's. He was also a cornet player. Very good one, with tremendous purity of tone and a flair for extended improvisation uh, that became eventually the hallmark of jazz. Although very few musicians are in his league and would be better advised to call it quits after uh, eight or even four bars of a solo. You'll never know. <laughs> The number of interminable solos I've edited out of various musical performances over the years. Anyway, in 1924, Bix was playing with a Midwestern combo called the Wolverines, the Wolverine Orchestra. And on February 18th, that would be 100 years ago on Sunday, they went into the Janet records studio in richmond indiana and put down two numbers not a lot of evidence uh, for the range of bix's talents on the a side fidgety feet he didn't have a lot to do on that one but on the b side he got to record his first ever cornet solo it starts about halfway through and it's quite something with a lot of appealing uh, accidentals 100 years old this week big spiderbeck and the wolverines with the jazz me blues <laughs> Thank you. 
1924, a song written a couple of years earlier by Tom Delaney, the Jazz Me Blues, the Wolverine Orchestra, and the first ever recorded solo by the great Bix Beidebeck on Cornet, a great artefact from the classical age of American popular culture. Uh, Bix Beidebeck was a hugely influential figure in jazz, but he did not enjoy a long recording career. Just seven years after cutting that disc, he was living in a flat in New York, Sunnyside, Queens, 4330 46th Street. Handsome old block still standing, apartment 1G, if you're interested. It had been a suffocatingly hot week in the city, and Bix couldn't sleep, so he played his piano late into the night, enchanting some of his neighbours and enraging others. Uh, and at about 9.30pm on August the 6th, 1931, the building manager, George Craslow, heard screams coming from Bix's flat and sprinted across the hallway. The great musician pulled him into the room and shaking all over, insisted there were two Mexicans with machetes hiding under the bed. Mr. Craslow got down on the floor to look under the box spring, and as he stood up again, Bix fell into his arms, unconscious. The manager rushed out to find the lady doctor who lived in the building, and she pronounced him dead. Bix Beidebeck was 28. A lot of stories like that lay ahead in the heyday of American jazz. One more musical footnote from 1924. 100 years ago, uh, February 19th, 1924, a man called André Pop was born in Fontenay-le-Comte in the Vendée, as uh, they now call the département, in, uh, in western France. Do you know Monsieur Pop? He was a composer, arranger, conductor, but he had one blockbuster hit, one of those ones you can live off forever. No, I don't mean his Franco-pop song, Manchester et Liverpool. 
Manchester et Liverpool, which for some reason the Soviet Union made the background music for the weather forecast on the USSR's number one state news show. That's very nice of them, but the commies weren't the most scrupulous about paying royalties. This one is the blockbuster, and for about a decade and a half, from the late 60s all through the 70s, it was pretty much everywhere around the planet, and everyone did it, from Johnny Mathis to the rocker Jeff Beck, which is pretty good for a losing song from the Eurovision Song Contest, especially one that could do no better than fourth place that year, 1967. It was the Luxembourg entry sung in French by a young Greek teenager and written by a composer of Dutch-German extraction. That's your Euro harmony right there. Vicky Leandros, L'amour est bleu. Blue, blue. My love is blue. by Pierre Cour, music by André Pop. 
who celebrates his centenary this month. I never really liked the main theme of that tune, but I'm quite partial to the middle section, the release. Uh, but, uh, you know, what do I know? There are thousands of recordings of that song, but that one was the very first from the 1967 Eurovision Song Contest, the Luxembourg entry, Darling Vicky Leandros, L'amour est bleu, love is blue. Mark Stein, live around the planet, it is 17 to 4, deep state standard time. That is 17 to 9, Greenwich mean look time if you're in aisle 9 at Wegmans. A little behind, a lot ahead according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. Let's get back to your questions. Chris Davis writes, Mark, was Boris Johnson's offer of $1 million to explain his position on Ukraine to Tucker Carlson the most indecent proposal of the year so far? I'm sure Tucker will be chomping at the bit to send over those greenbacks. Well, uh, in case you didn't see this, this was uh, after Boris denounced Tucker as a Kremlin stooge over his interview with Putin. So then Tucker said, OK, that'd be quite interesting to talk about. Why don't we do that? We can do it at the Oxford Union or whatnot. And um, and uh, Boris responded that he would agree to do it for a million bucks. (laughs) And uh, I can tell you that's more than uh, Tucker usually pays for an interview. And uh, at any, there's no point. Look, here's the thing. Uh, there's a, there's now a dis- uh, sort of bitchy bitch dispute over who said what uh, and who's uh, and and Boris is calling Tucker a liar. Boris lies continually. He has lied to me. Uh, he, he lied to me like for whatever, it was, something like 12, 14 years through the 1990s and uh, and the first decade of the 21st century. His, his more recently, they're all liars in the Johnson family. More recently, his god-awful dad, Stanley Johnson, lied to me. Or rather, he lied to uh, one of my pretty... He's just like a shameless... The whole family are liars. Now, the difference is this. People put up with Boris the way Boris carries. There's no point. For start, you're not going to get anything close to a million dollars worth from a one-hour interview with Boris Johnson. For start, he's a washed-up failure loser. He had his chance. He schemed his entire adult life to become prime minister. He got to the top of the greasy pole, screwed up, in part because of the lies, because he couldn't remember which lie he'd told. uh, And eventually that became a big problem for him. And so he slid down the greasy pole. But the difference is you're not getting a million bucks worth of anything paying for Boris Johnson. Because for, he's not going to give you anything. Boris, anyone uh, anyone listening in the United Kingdom who's ever booked Boris for a speech will know something about this. He, he turned, you know, you book him for a speech. He turns up 45 minutes late. He's unprepared. He sloughs off 
uh, gags that don't work, like that awful leaden pepper pig shtick he was doing to the, whatever it is, the Confederation of British Industry. So he's doing jokes about a, a brand new children's character to a lot of 58-year-old chief executives who have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, actually, and actually, uh, you're doing quite well if you get him to turn up 45 minutes later. A dear friend of mine in London booked Boris Johnson for a speech. And evidently, uh, you know, he'd been out rogering late the night before, so woke up a bit rogered out and didn't feel he was in the mood to give the speech. So he sent the his aforementioned awful father, Stanley Johnson, along. So all these people who'd signed up and paid to come and hear Boris Johnson speak had to put up with some crappy speech from Stanley Johnson. Now, here's the thing. People put up, he's always been like this. Boris is about Boris. Boris is uh, 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 about raking in the big bucks for Boris. Boris is all about Boris. And people put up with it because they thought, oh, well, look, he wouldn't have schemed his entire life to become prime minister if he didn't, if he wasn't, he wouldn't be making these comparisons of himself and Winston Churchill continually if he wasn't serious about making a go of it when uh, he got to number 10 Downing Street. So people put up with the fact that he was a rogue and a scoundrel uh, because they assumed he was serious about what he would do when he was in power. And instead he blew it. So he's now an even bigger scoundrel and an even bigger rogue, except he's also El Stinko Floppo Loser. For God's sake, nobody needs to pay a million bucks to hear... Uh, he's not going to tell you the truth about why he flew to Kiev in uh, whatever it was, 20... What year are we now? 2024, 2022 or whatever it was to scuttle uh, the hints of a possible peace deal that Zelensky uh, had been giving hints about. So Biden had Boris uh, shoot off to Kiev and scuttle the peace deal. Very interesting. He's not going to tell you the truth about they doesn't tell the truth about anything. He doesn't tell. He didn't tell the truth about the pasta of the day special he bought me in the cafe round the corner from the old Spectator offices in Doughty Street. He, he, nobody needs to pay money to hear what Boris Johnson thinks. George Pereira says here on the left coast of the gay state. Well, what gay? They're all gay, aren't they? Is there a non-gay state? Uh, Mark says here on the... I think he means California. Mark, he says... Uh, George says here on the left coast of the gay state, illegals have started to flood the small towns and cities. Several hotels have been filled. And as you, and I mean you as a normal, rational person, might expect the streets are becoming more dangerous. Crime and drug use are going up faster than the little man's hockey stick. And the hospitals are now getting, quote, patients who laugh and speak OK English and until they see a doctor or nurse and then need a translator. Pain is always a 10. Imagine that, being in so much pain, they always need drugs. There is also an old factory just down the street, a couple of towns over, that has been slowly gathering steam as a low-income housing project, maybe 128 apartments. I guarantee this will suddenly start going gangbusters 
and be filled with illegals. I'm an old white guy. Can't I just call them wetbacks? Eisenhower did in 1954 with Operation Wetback. And I like Ike. But I digress. The small towns here are going to be destroyed slowly and then all at once because of this. What continues to baffle me is the elites who are causing this destruction seem to be getting away with it without any consequences to themselves. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because... Uh, I, I make this point sometimes when I talk about the right abdicating the culture. Uh, so they play no part in the culture. So the culture is entirely left wing. And the culture, uh, the, 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 the culture puts in play narratives that are appealing. It would be very nice. Multiculturalism would be very nice if it were true, that you could take all, all these different kinds of people. And it turns out that uh, just like in a Benetton ad or the Coca-Cola, I'd like to teach the world to sing ad, that when we all stand around holding hands, it doesn't matter whether somebody is, uh, uh, is of a different religion or a different race. We all love each other and get That's an appealing fairy tale. It's complete codswallop, but it has an appeal. And when it's pushed as relentlessly, uh, as, so you have all the old diversity is our strength thing, and it's done. The UN just put out a big diversity is our strength thing. <laughs> the other, when it's everywhere, when it's relentless, then um, it's very, it becomes very hard for weak and people, especially not terribly political people, to resist. And it's done at a certain point. Um, they always assume in the back of their minds, if it occurs to them, you know, they take a wrong turn somewhere or other and they're driving through a, 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 a part of town that's a little bit too vibrantly multicultural for them to feel entirely safe in it. They always assume uh, that they will be able to insulate themselves from these things. Now, your point about the small towns and cities is an important one, because I noticed this uh, when I was in uh, France for a while after, I can't remember now whether it was after my second or third heart attack, and, I, you know, these stories we've covered on the show, Ava feels very strongly about them. You know, there's a bunch of moms just, uh, or mums, uh, just uh, taking their kids to the park in Annecy and suddenly some vibrantly diverse chap springs up and starts stabbing everyone. What I notice that whenever I, I thought about this, I sort of actually did some arithmetic and worked it out because you always think, oh, well, you know, and people who ought to know better, like a... Uh, a certain Dr. Starkey on uh, GB News, big famous historian. He came on the show and he said to me, oh, well, yes, you know, yeah, the big cities in England are screwed. But if you go to the villages, they're still nice. No, eventually they'll be in the villages, too. We covered a story like that from uh, La Drome in uh, France uh, a few months back. Uh, and I, I actually, after this one story that Ava and I talked about, I actually sort of tried to work it out. And I worked it out to this, that you will have, for example, in France, a Muslim presence 
a self-segregating Muslim presence. Now in almost any town with 3,000, bigger than 3,000 people or so. So if you're in a village that's uh, got, you know, 200 people, that's swell. But if you in any town bigger than 3,000, including in some of the ones we've reported on, uh, this issue is there. So this idea of, you know, that there's somewhere to run to, no. California is lost. Cali the, the, the California was a golden state, and this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, about becoming a third world country. Much of California is now a third world country. Heart, heart, heart of my heart. I love that melody. Heart says, uh, I pray that you've had a good rest and have been able to wash off the vile stench of the rotten DC ether. This past week, I watched both leftist and conservative pundits excoriate Putin over the death of Alexei Nav Navalny. This is exactly the reason we need to send more money to Ukraine, they scream. Putin is a murderer. I stupidly kept waiting for someone on our side to mention Jeffrey Epstein or Julian Assange, but no. Yeah. I mean, how unself-aware do you have to be to, oh, Putin, uh, Putin puts his political opponents in prison. What do you think these cases in uh, Georgia, in New York, in uh, the District of Columbia, in, Co in, in, uh, in Colorado, uh, what do you think all this stuff is, is about here? The criminalization of political opposition. And when America goes down that path, maybe it doesn't do it as crudely as they do in other countries. But actually, what happened to Jeffrey Epstein, the most valued prisoner in the care of the Bureau of Prisons, uh, is pretty telling. Uh, and that's exactly what will be happening to poor Julian Assange if, uh, if, if the uh, American deep state gets its way and he's put on a plane uh, to the United States. Speaking of D.C., continues Hart, I've long thought that our founding fathers made two tragic mistakes. The first, and you've alluded to it before, was the creation of a federal district that, as we now know, will forever be an inherent part of the deep state. Uh, yeah, I, I, I had no idea, actually. <laughs> Having spent a month in Washington, I'm not impressed by it. I don't generally like capital cities that are not uh, great, that are purely government centers like Ottawa or Canberra. Um, but, you know, uh, Canada and Australia are, are not great world powers. So you assume that wherever they put their capital, you know, it, it'd be a fairly low key affair. But the United States... I mean, I'll tell you why I don't like purpose-built capital cities, because it makes the politicians and, and even worse, the, the, the staffers uh, the most important people in town. So, you know, if you're in a in Rome or uh, Paris or London, the politician is one of the least important people in town because they're... Uh, you know, 
great important businessmen and uh, theatre stars, and because it's because it's a an, it's a it's a multi-purpose capital. It's the home of arts and entertainment, and it's the home of uh, business and high finance. So the politicians are among the least important people in the place, and they get the table in the restaurant by the toilet door, and so that's the main reason I don't I don't like. Uh, purpose-built capitals like Washington. Uh, The second mistake, continues Hart, was uh, not initially declaring us a Christian nation. Madison and Jefferson had such a tremendous animus towards the Church of England that no statement of religion adherence could be included in our founding documents. I understand the obvious arguments to the contrary, but I think that in stating who we are, it would have proven valuable to state what we believe. Am I wrong in these assertions? Look, the whole business with the Church of England is that uh, back then and to this day, the king, George III back then and Charles III now, is the supreme governor of the Church of England. So his majesty appoints the archbishops and bishops and they sit in the House of Lords, in the upper chamber of the parliament. And Uh, This whole so-called separation of church and state, uh, as you said, Madison and Jefferson didn't want that. They didn't want the president of the United States appointing the Archbishop of Virginia and giving him a seat in the United States Senate. That's, That's what it means to have an established church. The idea that you can't sing Silent Night at the grade school holiday concert is pathetic absolutely pathetic and it's a definition of separation of church and state that they would have thought absolutely nutso you know i landed i i'd written a column about some stupid thing where somebody had put up a you know i forget the law says you can put up a nativity scene at christmas as long as you give everybody else there so the people who believe in star wars can have a may the force be with you scene and the satanists can have a satanist scene outside the town hall if you if you have the nativity you got to have all the others this is stupid it's self-moronizing i remember writing about this and then getting on a flight from boston to uh, Dublin and we stopped uh, the plane put down in Shannon and I got off the plane and had breakfast in Shannon and Shannon had a beautiful Shannon airport had a beautiful uh, nativity scene there and you know uh, Ireland is pretty post-Catholic these days but they uh, they're they're not they're not uh, which is the great uh, abiding curse of America as I've learned to my cost uh, they're not in uh, in in uh, that mentality where everything has to be litigated and regulated. So in order to determine whether you can sing Silent Night at your grade school holiday concert, instead of just singing it and seeing whether the crowd dig it or not, uh, you've got to get some Supreme Court precedents on that. I don't think... I I used to think... You know, Christendom is pretty much dead in Europe, and we've seen it's it's heartbreaking to see the empty churches across uh, much of the continent. And I used to think that America would be a holdout from that, 
But uh, when you look at the numbers, uh, particularly among the young, uh, it's not hard to see that America is actually galloping and catching up. In part, it's because the reality of where they are, you know, if you think that you, to, to think that, oh, uh, the 12-year-old uh, the, the girl can uh, be put on hormones and have her middle school breasts sliced off and become a boy is to say that we don't need God because each of us is our own God. And once you internally digest the logic of that, um, then even the open and affirming churches, so-called, like the Congregational Church, where they're LGBT, QWERTY, or go-go, there's no re not really any need for them. And, um, you know, you may, be, you may be right there. Certainly, though, America, you know, they didn't um, feel the need to put any statement of religious adherence in the founding documents because they took it for granted. Uh, and and that's how it stayed. And that's why it's within living memory that things you took for granted, uh, suddenly the Supreme Court determines were illegal all along, uh, which is, as I said, one of the aspects, even if I hadn't been on the receiving end of this idea that everything in the United States has to be litigated before it's legitimate, uh, I would uh, I would still regard as idiotic. Uh, Johnny Woodrow says, Hi, Mark, have you seen the Tucker interview with Mike Benz on the CIA promoting free speech and social media for regime change in Arab contexts and then switching to censorship in the West? as it begins to backfire on them, giving rise to populist movements. Benz says the CIA and FBI turned their regime change and management tools onto the domestic setting and changed policy to designate tweets hostile to the state narrative as a threat to trusted institutions and democracy. I think that was the gist anyway. All very compelling. If that is true, it provides a wider context for freedom and speech cases like yours and for Julian Assange. Assange, says Johnny Woodrow. Yeah, that's true. I think the whole... Uh, I oppose the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and the other 9-11 bodies uh, 20... What is it now? 23 years ago. Uh, because I took the uh, Thatcherite view that if you create a bureaucracy to manage a problem, you'll never be rid of the problem. But it was actually worse than and that's a principled stand to take. I loathed the minute they decided so a bunch of a, a, a bunch of fanatical Muslims fly planes into skyscrapers and instead of punishing the fanatical Muslims, we punish the American people by degrading them and accustomizing them to shuffling shoeless through the airports until the end of time. Uh, and, it, and it became clear during the 2016 campaign, that the surveillance tools that these guys had been given, uh, supposedly to monitor guys planning stuff in caves in Afghanistan, were in fact being used on the American people. And I'm not really sure what we can do about that. Uh, although I do, I think good advice is, particularly if you have a kind of, any kind of, I mean, it made me laugh 
when you see all these things started up like parlor and then uh, oh this is the free speech alternative to this that or the other and then somebody goes uh, okay and just presses the off switch the the thing you can do if you it's going to get more difficult to do anything like that uh going to get more difficult to do a lot of the things we do on this uh show and on at this website and the only way the way to keep the one thing you can do is to root as much as you can through uh, different territories and make sure you're extremely careful about any party or business that depends on the United States. I mentioned vdare.com. I was glad to see uh, Tucker talking to uh, Lydia Brimelow from vdare. They're, they're an anti-immigration site they not just the wetbacks as uh, as we heard about earlier but they actually don't think they think illegal no no i've said this on on tucker when i used to guest host for tucker no first world country needs mass unskilled immigration it's stupid there's no economic need for it no economic need for it at all but simply opposing the diversity is our strength bollocks, uh, they now have, they're now, the Brimelows are now spending most of their day uh, dealing with stupid, unlawful subpoenas from the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt Attorney General of New York, Letitia James. Uh, so basically, uh, basically what is happening now is that uh, the 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 jihadists for the most part have the run of the planet and this whole panopticon 24/7 security state is basically turned on the people of the United States and it would be good to hear you know uh, it would be good to hear a few of the pom-pom girls on the right on the american right talking about that aaron everett says my i would love your thoughts on what i see as a growing gap in how different age groups are processing politics it seems fairly clear that people under 50 and over 50 are living in <laughs> two different realities the people under 50 seem to be getting their information from other sources social media podcasts etc and gauging that information against the reality they face in real life inflation border drug use medical mistrust that seems to be leading them to different responses politically such as abstention from voting or looking to outside candidates because they don't see the current iteration of politics as functioning the over 50 crowd seems to be getting their info from the traditional sources and regardless of what they experience in real life they make their political decisions based upon what the media of their choice says they should support i will give this as anecdotal evidence but watching the tucker putin interview with my dad was like watching him being tortured because of its length and lack of commentary conversely my friends and i watched tucker's interview with mike ben's and the whole room was completely engaged. Maybe I haven't experienced enough election cycles, even though I'm an American. But it would seem to me that this is a unique break in our response to politicians and how information is processed. How do you see it? Continued prayers for your health and legal endeavours. Well, I would say, I, I was thinking sort of a similar point recently, just because of 
this verdict against me in the D.C. Superior Court, and I was standing well back, expecting uh, an avalanche to fall upon me. Because I remember, you know, things the way things used to be, that if you had something that uh, where you suffered a big loss like that, the lazy asses of the so-called mainstream media would pile on. And uh, the chances are you'd wake up in the morning over. You'd be finished. And actually, that didn't happen with this stupid verdict in the District of Columbia, because even though the mainstream media uh, behaved about as you'd expect, we've, you know, if you've seen what they said in the Washington Post or the New York Times or National Public Radio or whatever, um, it, 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 I should be over. I should be finished, except I'm not, because nobody reads those or listens to those outlets anymore compared just to 10 years ago. Nobody reads American newspapers. So, yeah, you think, oh, my God, the New York Times has said blah, 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 blah. And that's because, you know, I'm still thinking of the New York Times saying this as if it were 1978 or whatever. And it's not. So there is there's that, that these uh, forms of media are dying uh, there's other things like you alluded to the fact that, you know, your dad couldn't wrap his head around the fact that Tucker and Putin were just yakking for as long as it takes. And it wasn't being uh, interrupted by somebody saying, yeah, that's uh, another clip from my uh, interview, interview with Vladimir Putin there. We're going to come back and have more from my interview with Vladimir Putin. Uh, but uh, first, uh, uh, we're going to go to our panel to see what they think of the two minute clip of my interview with Vladimir Putin that we've heard so far. So what do you think of that panel? Yeah, that's very interesting. We're going to come back and get more from the panel after the break and then after the break and a bit more from the panel we'll go back and hear another two minute clip from my interview with Vladimir Putin and uh, the, the whole I've said I think I've said this before as well the whole unethical thing about the um uh, the, the the way it used to be when these guys had a hammerlock on the media I remember I was asked if I wanted to be interviewed on 60 minutes I think this was about the 1987 UK election. I said, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. So I went along to wherever it was, their little studio in Charlotte Street, and some producer um, uh, asked me a, a few questions, and uh, then I went away. And uh, then <laughs> all my family back in Toronto were incredibly impressed because when it went out, you know, Mike Wallace was the guy interviewing me. They edited him in being all butch, you know. I must press you on this, Mr. <laughs> and, uh, and so... Um uh, and, 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 and so that whole thing is gone now. You're much closer just to the raw. Those over the, the speech rhythms on those 60 Minutes interviews where you've got the super butch uh, question uh, for the host and then this and, and then this like little uh, super hyper edited uh, answer from the guest that sounds like no normal speech rhythms anywhere on the planet. That all seems odd now. So those are stylistic changes, I would say, Aaron. But I would also say this, that it's not just a difference in where you get your news source from. The advantage of 
the so-called mainstream sources, maybe of the ones that your dad likes, is that they keep you in the dark. Uh, so it's not just a stylistic difference between, you know, these things. It's that the one system is increasingly committed to keeping you in the dark. And I'll cite no further example of that than the New York Times story written by Michael Mann and Peter Fontaine about their court victory over me and Rand Simberg. And yet you would never know who they'd beaten in court because my name and Rand Simberg's name uh, never mentioned. Now, the New York Times would have insisted the names be included as recently as a decade ago, but not anymore, because they don't want people Googling Rand Simberg or me and thinking, oh, maybe, maybe these guys had a point. So it's better just to leave them out entirely. You know, their, their thing is who you're going to believe me or your lion eyes, and then they tie the mainstream media uh, blindfold on you. Or if you prefer, it's they roll a safe sex condom or over the news. So there's nothing in there that might infect you, as it were. Gabriel Garcia Moreno says, in advance of your Ofcom hearing and hoping both you and King Charles are fighting fit to be present at his royal bench. Yeah, the king is officially the plaintiff here because it's His Majesty the King upon the application of Mark Stein versus Ofcom. It'd be enlightening to be afforded an insight into your increasingly broad perspective uh, experience of spineless broadcasting partners. Did GB News manage to plumb the Mariana Trench depths of the esteemed CRTV? Um, they're not, you know, I, I, I saw somebody posted a clip of something I'd done on GB news, you know, a year ago or whatever it was. And I looked at the little two minute clip cause I'd completely forgotten about it. And it was actually pretty good. We were talking about things that mattered. And of course, that's the big problem. They all want you just that. That's the whole reason the political horse race stuff is what most of these guys descend into, um, because that doesn't that doesn't matter. You know, it's it's boring. It's OK for Election Day for six weeks of an election campaign. But as I said, the, my first appearance on GB News, I have no interest in who this week's Lord Privy Seal is. And both. There's no point even talking about this thing, because in the end, you know, we've had this fantastic conservative media in America where, uh, you know, some people have done very well out of it. They've uh, made a lot of money out of it. But the country has never been less conservative. And that's the same thing in in the UK. And it's some and it's not even about that with me, because I don't even think much about left and right anymore. I'm thinking that I'm, I go back to that thing about the American war machine because it's a racket. It's a disgusting racket. I don't mind people, you know, I'd rather someone becomes rich just by spouting bollocks on TV or radio because at least he's not sending young men to his death like they're doing in these discussions. Even when they're, and I'm talking about sending young New Hampshire guys and Vermont guys to their deaths in Afghanistan uh, for, the, for, for a 20-year uh, war with no purpose 
in which, as Julian Assange says, the idea isn't to win or lose the war. Uh, the idea is just to keep it going till you've made enough money. And 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 that's bad. And it's bad even when you do it at one remove. The the Democrat Russia Ukraine is the first war to be fought by two nations with deathbed demography, and the scale of slaughter and injury is such that Ukraine will take generations to recover from the demographic damage of that i think you know i just like i'm interested in talking about things that matter and 90 percent of the stuff that they talk about on gb news is just uh, irrelevant bollocks total bollocks uh mark stein live around the planet just about live and that is almost it because i gotta get packed and head to the docks for the start of this year's Mark Stein Cruise. Maestro! There is no verse to this song Cause I don't wanna wait a moment too long To say that I'd love to get you On a slow boat to China All to myself alone Get you and keep you in my arms evermore Leave all your lovers weeping on the faraway shore Out on the briny with a moon big and shiny Melting your heart of stone I'd love to get you on a slow boat to China All to myself alone Oh, come on, Jessica. What do you say? Well, you know, Mark, I have got a business meeting in Shanghai. Maybe if we booked a junk round the Cape of Good Hope, I could do some teleconferencing from the bilge pump. The romance of the seas I'm gonna get you On a slow boat to China All to myself alone A twist in the rudder And a rip in the sail Drifting and dreaming Toss the cell phone over the rail Just Jess and Mark Steiny. I'll be melting your heart of stone. I'm gonna love you on that slow boat to China. All to myself. Our ships departing. Just me and Miss Martin. You'll be To get you on a slow boat to China All to myself Off the continental shelf All to myself Alone 
A song from Me To You, words and music by Frank Lesser, arranged and conducted, as always, by Kevin Amos. That's me and Miss Jessica Martin, who knows a little bit about slow boats in that general vicinity, uh, because her dad was the band leader at the Raffles Hotel in Singapore. Steiny will be on the briny starting Saturday with Leilani, uh, Samantha, a lot of old friends, a slow boat uh, from Florida through the British West Indies to Mexico. That'll do it for our show. Stick with Stein Online for our regular Thursday date with Laura's links. Laura Rosen Cohen will round up the internet as only she can. Our official Stein versus the Stick trial merchandise is still available. Only now it's the uh, official product for the Pellet hearing. Plus a change, plus a la même case. We ordered it in the early years of this trial by ordeal, trial by ordeal, the American way. Uh, so we even have uh, Stein versus the Stick mouse pads. If you remember mouse pads, we probably have a Stein versus the Stick hula hoop, a Stein versus the Stick buggy whip. This case has been going on so long, they're bound to be lying around here somewhere. If you don't fancy those, there's always a Stein Online gift certificate or a Mark Stein Club gift membership. Stay safe, stay free, stay well, stay out of court. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Rights Reserved.